that's what art is about. It's about honoring and capturing that sense of difference that we each have. This is Rick Barrett, who's talking with me today at Auburn about writing in the space of an art museum. My name is Chris Molinsky, Director of Education at the Jewel Colin Smith Museum of Fine Art at Auburn University. Today I talked with Rick about the difference between writing as an art historian and writing as a poet. How is our reading of objects subjective? How is it personal and political? How can we challenge our reading of objects in new ways? In today's episode, Rick will read one of his poems and we'll think together about poetry and visual art. My name is Rick Barrett, and I'm a poet and teacher, and I live and work in Tacoma, Washington. When I was an undergraduate, I, I, I loved the art history classes that I took, and I just noticed that I was gravitating towards them quite a bit, in addition to the English and the poli-sci classes that I was also taking, because there was also the idea that I might go to law school. And so poli-sci seemed like a pathway for that. And so English and um, art history were just these sort of passionate things that I wanted to take um, for myself, rather than thinking of them as sort of professional sort of uh, pathways, the way I did with poli-sci. But in terms of art history, I just, I, I, I'm a very visual person, and so the experience of sort of aesthetic pleasure is something that I really care about. And taking classes in art history and architecture was just like pigs in mud. <laughs> it, was, it was just sort of being in an environment that was very um, deeply comforting, but also incredibly provocative because art history as I soon learned in taking these classes, wasn't just about the, um, the aesthetic experience. There were all of these components in somebody's engagement with art that could be a lot more complicated and textured, both emotionally and intellectually. So you learn about the context that, that surround art and that inform art, and the social and cultural and historical sort of like energies that are converging in any work of art. So that to me, in a way, um, it, it, it seduced me even further to, to realize that engaging with art wasn't just about, you know, feeling incredibly stimulated in terms of your senses, but also having a, a very much more, um, gaining a deeper and broader sense of the world. Every year we collaborate with the Southern Humanities Review to host the Auburn Witness Poetry Prize. And Rick is in town because he was the juror of the 2022 prize. Everywhere you look in an art museum, there are written labels. There's text everywhere. And I was curious to talk with Rick about ways that creative writing, ways that poets could use this space, the space of description in an art museum because of his interest in visual art, but also because of Rick's background studying art history, he's an interesting example for us. I asked Rick to select a poem that highlighted a new way of reading an object. This is a process that writers call ekphrastic poetry, but we can also think of as just simple museum interpretation. 
This poem is called On Some Items in the Painting by Velasquez. And this is a poem that's responding to Las Meninas, the, the very famous painting by Velasquez that's in the um, Prado Museum. And even if you didn't know the name of this um, painting or the artist, you've probably seen it because it's kind of iconic. It shows the, the young uh, princess in the foreground surrounded by the royal household. It's this very kind of big, crowded um, painting of the Spanish royal court. And so this, this painting, uh, or this poem, responds to that. On some items in the painting by Velasquez, the LASIK surgery buzzing that turns out to be the sound sampled deep in the electronica track. Just so, the mind can follow the objects back to their bitter cartography. The silver tray traced to the 600 mines and 60 miles of mines in the mountain in Potosí, the workers in loincloth and candlelight, or on the tray, the red cup the scholars of material culture believe to be from Guadalajara, its clay that gives the water a pleasant and fragrant flavor. This is what the five-year-old Infanta must prefer, though it is not desire her posture telegraphs, but the self-regard of someone who understands she is what economists would call a positional good. At 21, married off in Vienna, she will be dead, her body its own consumed nexus of labor. Several miscarriages, four children. Meanwhile, back in her immortal childhood, the king and queen stand in the mirror, authority and love. The drapery just behind them, a silk fabric dyed red from cochineal, the natives using pointed sticks to extract the dormant bugs from the nopal cactus, insects as valuable as silver and gold. Each trophy is taken seemingly for granted, except the objects are in the central axis of what Velasquez has organized in the painting, like an exceptional identity, where we might pause and see them, or glance past, these silent detonations the world has collapsed into. Like my own desires, even though I think of myself as someone with a regulated mind, wanting happiness as simple as a can of yellow paint, or as perfect as the platinum skull that $50 million might buy, the skull cast by Damien Hirst from what was once an 18th century head and covered with 8,601 diamonds. You know, that, that painting is usually read in art historical terms as a kind of virtuosic um, example of Velasquez's, his, his sense of art. Um, so it's very famous for that, for the masterpiece that it is. But there are other uh, ways of looking at that artwork that have to do with actually reading the, the things which are in it. And um, what, as my poem suggests, you can actually look at objects within that painting, whether it's the, the silver tray or the clay cup 
or the red curtain and see um, in those um, objects the, the kind of the connection to colonialism. The fact that that um, silver tray was probably made of silver from mines, you know, in Latin America uh, because Spain owned big parts of that part of the world. Um, same thing with the clay cup that's made out of clay from Guadalajara, which is another place of the Spanish Empire. And the same thing with the cochineal and the red dye. So there is this other story within the kind of the received story of that painting. And it's a story that has to do with colonial violence and trauma and the extraction of resources from other places, all to serve, you know, this royal structure. And the irony is that when I was doing research for that for that painting, I learned that the five-year-old princess that is the main subject of that painting, she was herself a commodity. Um, just sort of given the, the geopolitics of the time, she was married off to um, some royalty person in, in Austria. You know, almost like she was traded off, <laughs> um, like a, a good, a commercial good herself. And she was, she was, she died quite young in her 20s after having, you know, had miscarriages and um, births. And so she herself was a site of a kind of violent um, political um, trauma. One of the things I love about this poem is the way in which it provides a deep reading. It unpacks specific details and the complicated politics that surround specific items that you can see within the work itself. But Rick has certain agency as a poet. He has a creative agency. As a writer, he embraces subjective interpretation, the ways in which museum education can open up personal experiences. Every person, whether they're an artist or not, has a matrix of subjectivity that they bring, you know, to their engagement with the world, whatever is in front of them. Um, I, I have this little exercise I give to my students where, you know, we go outside the classroom, we go out onto the broader part of campus for five minutes, and I ask them to note five things that they notice while they're just outside walking around. And we, when we regather in the classroom and, you know, compare notes on what we noticed, it's always the case that every person has a different list. You know, upstairs there's that incredible sculpture by Ramel Ross that has, that shows a, a tree branch that has been, uh, that has a pair of basketball shorts. <laughs> the tree branch is wearing a pair of Ramel's old basketball shorts. You know, what would happen if I bring a classroom of students into that space and we all looked at that sculpture? Every person looking at that is going to have a, an incredibly different take on what that means. One kind of student might think that it's, it's a kind of piece of absurd, you know, art. Why would you put a pair of, um, you know, basketball shorts on a tree, a tree branch? Whereas another kind of student might be really tuned in to the, the resonance that 
those two objects have when they're brought together. That for, you know, let's say uh, a black person looking at that tree branch, that evokes not necessarily pleasant pastoral thoughts, but thoughts of trauma and violence and lynching. And the same thing with the basketball shorts, where, you know, from one standpoint, that seems very innocent. They're just a pair of shorts. But from another standpoint, you know, that that has a kind of a sociological and historical and cultural significance that's more complicated than just the thing itself. And so all the different people in the room looking at the same thing, they're going to have very different subjective experiences of that once you invite them to kind of inhabit that subjectivity. Um, and that to me is, is exciting because that, that, that's where art comes from, that the, that the difference that we bring to common experiences, um, that's what art is about. It's about honoring and capturing that sense of difference that we each have when we're moving through what we think of as reality. My thanks to Rick Barrett for talking with us. All museum programs, including this podcast, are made possible by listeners like you. Visit jcsm.auburn.edu to show your support. <laughs>